lobby, everyone. It's good to see all of you. Four years old through fourth grade, you're dismissed to get up and walk to the front over here. Four years old through fourth grade. I thought Clayton was going to go into how I diminished his um, golf game last week and elevated his dad um, because it's the first time that's ever happened, I think, for, for them. Um, but that was a really great meditation on that. How many of you ever feel like life is in the fast lane? Like it is just going crazy fast. Uh, everything's in a hurry. You ever know that when people are coming over and you got to do meals and you got to get things, sometimes you're like rushing to get stuff done um, and you want to make sure it looks good and then you realize it's family. Right up here is my family, just so you know. That's my mom and dad. That's my brother and his wife. You can tell my brother and I apart because he's still trying to grow here while he can. He's got that little mullet thing, and he's gelling it all up. Yeah. Jealousy? <laughs> it's diminished. This is really what I think of his hair. <laughs> okay. Anyway, okay. So life is a hurry. And we, and we got so many things to do. Alan Fadling, uh, in his book, he titled, An Unhurried Life, tells of a parable of a king who had these two servants. The first servant rose really early for each day, wanted to please the king, and so he would go out and find all these different tasks to do, and he would work all day long until late in the evening. He didn't want to bother the king with what things needed done, so he just tried to figure them out and stayed busy all day. The other servant was also very eager to please the king, He'd rise very early, but then he'd take a few moments and go to the king. Ask him, what are your wishes for today? What are the things you want done today? After such a consultation, then he would spend the rest of the day doing the tasks that the king himself expressed that he wanted. Now, the busy servant got a lot of things done by the time the inquiring servant even went to the king. But which of them do you think brought more joy and pleasure to the king? The second one, that's right. Genuine productivity is not about getting as much done for God as we can manage, he said, Alan Felding said. It's doing the good work that God has already assigned and given to us that day. Genuine productivity is learning that we are more than servants, that we are beloved sons and daughters invited into the good kingdom to live and work for our heavenly kingdom. Here is the thing with these two servants as we move into the sermon today. We cannot confuse busyness with productivity. Just being busy doesn't mean you do everything. You can stay busy and run down the clock. What's that mean? Don't get caught wasting time. That's what it means. When you're on the clock, oh, just stay busy and, and look good. A lot of people fill their lives with activities. They go to this and that event. They spend this much time at work. They spend this much time on their own projects. They are constantly busy, and yet are they productive? 
lot of people live busy lives without stopping to ever think and ask, what does God want me to do? Have you ever stopped in the hurriedness of your life and said, what does God want me to do? As a result, uh, busy people hurry from one project to another and they feel like they're slaves. they wearing themselves out or wearing thin, trying to accomplish whatever God thinks is important, but they've never sought to ask Him. On the other hand, some people, having discovered God's will, they do God's work that God has given them. They know they are loved sons and daughters uh, because their Heavenly Father has invited them to participate in His kingdom work. And as a result, they enjoy genuine productivity. They live full lives without the hassle and the hurry. So as we go into the text today, I want you to ask yourself this question. What is God's will for your life? Not just your overall life, but even what is, your will, what is God's will for your life each day? What are the most important things that He wants you to accomplish daily? We're going to be in John chapter 4, if you want to turn there in digital or hardback copies. And we're going to see Jesus express God's will in this uh, life story here. Starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I believe Scripture is written by the authority and the divine nature of God, and it is specifically written for a purpose. And so, verse 4, and he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. He had to. Well, if you look at a map, you don't have to go through Samaria. General Jews would not do that. They wouldn't go through Samaria. That was a gross place to go. You would have to be ceremonially cleansed if you went through there. So you would spend an extra day to go east a little bit, then go north, and then cross back over the river and back into God's country, not Samaria. That's how they think. Remember, the Samaritans um, opposed the Jews after the Jewish people were in exile for 500 years, and the Jews looked at Samaritans as bad blood. And verse 4, Jesus says he had to pass through Samaria. Why? What's the question I asked us to think about today? What is God's will for me? Right there, it is God's will, and later his will will be revealed, but right now we don't know. We just know he has to go. We do know in John 4.34, jump to the bottom of the chapter, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him, God, who sent me and to accomplish His work. My food is to do what God wants me to do. You know, first of all, Jesus ain't hungry when He said this. When a man's hungry, what does he think about? Food. Okay, so what is Jesus thinking about? God's will. And that's what nourishes him. So doing God's will nourishes Jesus. It energizes him. That's why he has to go. He knows it's God's will. Let's go to verse 5. John 4, 5. 
So he went, or so he came to the town of Samaria in Samaria called Sechar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus was a little tired. We know he's human. He's he's let go of the divine nature so he could take on the full flesh of man. And he's a little exhausted, and he sits by the well. If you're exhausted and you need a drink of water, are you just going to sit there? Again, though, what is Jesus' focus here? God's will. Now, this well time, okay, it is not a normal time. It said the sixth hour. It's not a normal time for anybody to be at the well. So what is Jesus waiting for? Because plenty of times, whenever you drew water then, if somebody was there, you would always offer them a drink. And Jesus here is sitting, waiting, which shows intentionality, which means he knows what he's going to be doing. It's not the normal time for anybody, especially women, to be drawing water. So it's obvious that the woman that is going to come is somebody that Jesus is waiting for. Can you imagine that? Realizing that you are the person Jesus has been waiting for. That that Jesus was waiting to fulfill God's will in you. Let's see what happens. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. What are the disciples thinking about? Food. They're hungry. But what is Jesus focused on? God's will. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, we can't just say this. How would this person... How is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a woman from Samaria? Literally, Jews do not even use the dishes. There's a black time in American culture when only certain people could drink from this water fountain and only certain people could drink from this water fountain, which was stupid. It was just wrong. Because it, it, that doesn't matter. But we had this prejudice stuff there. It it was even more rooted here that they would say, I I can't touch, I can't even touch that dish because a Samaritan. And she's looking at that. In Jesus' day, Jewish men could... uh My mom's here, which makes my tongue go... uh Okay. It's a true thing. It's a symptom of being a Blake. Um, It's true. You just have to ask her. And then she'll say the same thing. Okay, so... Uh, Jewish day, Jewish, or in Jesus' day, Jewish men considered Samaritan women to be constantly unclean. Constantly. Therefore, a Jew who would drink from a Samaritan woman's cup would be ceremonially unclean. Jesus' request of the Samaritan woman was unthinkable. There's no way a good Jew would do this would even ask to be associated with a Samaritan. Men refused to be associated with women in public at this time. Good people refused to be associated with immoral, and Samaritans were even worse than immoral to a Jew. And yet Jesus says, can I have a drink of water? He's inviting something here. Go to verse 10. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Notice what she does here. Where do you get that living water? Now she wants to know. She's curious. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, he's pointing at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. She wants this water so bad she doesn't want to have to go to the well anymore. She doesn't want to have to go in the wrong time of day because we're going to find out what kind of a woman she is. She doesn't want to do that. She wants this perpetual water living inside her so she doesn't have to work. How many of you would you love to know that you never have to be thirsty again? You're all hot and it's, it's sticky and all of a sudden, that refreshing just fills with inside you. This Samaritan woman thinks that Jesus is talking about tangible drinking water. You know, flavored water, something that you'd have to buy in a bottle, something that was super and wonderful. I just said bottled water, and so people started looking around like, oh, that's, that's you. You buy bottled water. But Jesus isn't talking about artisan water. He's talking about spiritual water. In John chapter 7, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in this. Remember, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to. Which means Jesus was meant to meet this woman. Jesus is following God's plan, God's will to meet this woman at this well. It was God's will that she meet Him. So what is God's will for you today? Well, like the Samaritan woman, all of us to drink of His living water. To drink of the living water, which means the Holy Spirit. God wants you to welcome the Holy Spirit in your life, to find that true eternal refreshment in Him. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again of the Spirit. Here John, in John 4, Jesus tells the woman that she must drink of the new life of the Holy Spirit. It's the same idea, just a different metaphor. Whether you're religious person, a respected ruler like Nicodemus, or a disobedient, despised outcast like this woman, no matter who you are, Jesus' will is that you drink of the living water. To run away from Christ is the most dangerous thing of all at this point. To run away from it means that you're never going to have that living water spring up within you. To run towards Christ and drink of His Spirit, well, that's going to lead to Him consuming you, wrapping you up into His life, and after that, you will never be the same again. So what will it be for you? Will you run to Jesus and let that living water fill you? Will you later choose to face His wrath without that? Will you drink of the water or will you walk away? Let's see what the woman does. Verse 16. 
Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about water. This woman had been asking for living water, and Jesus turns the questions, and he says, well, go bring your husband. Now, what does this have to do anything? Well, look, let's see, verse 17, the woman says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now um, the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. This is a weird turn of a conversation. Jesus says, bring your husband because he wants her to do something. Before you can take of that living water, you have to accept and acknowledge you're a sinner. She has failed in five marriages, and now this time, the sixth time, she is avoiding marriage altogether and just living in sin with this guy. She's just like, forget it. I'm not going to live in marriage. I'm just going to live together. And Jesus calls her to truth. Fortunately, she answered truthfully. She was honest, which is another thing we need to understand about coming to God's will when we want to taste of that living water of the Holy Spirit, we cannot do it with hidden sins. We cannot ask for the Holy Spirit and plan on living in habitual sin. You, you, we just can't do both. Jesus invites this woman here to be changed, to come to God in real worship. To do that, she needs to be honest about herself, about her sin, before she can come to God and worship. To honestly praise Him from her heart, from her mind. To adore Him sincerely and spiritually. And to do that, we can't just hide sins. Because God knows. He sees what we have in secret. It's about openly confessing that sin to God, our Lord. And coming to Him with no pretense. God wants us to be honest with our sin. Notice He's not going to condemn her for this. He says, you're right, you told the truth. There was almost a pat on the back. And when he does this, can you imagine somebody called you out? No, there was nobody else around. But called, you're right. Not only is that not your husband, but you've had five, and the sixth one isn't even your husband. I think we'd all want to do, if somebody, if Jesus came and started calling out our hidden sins, the reason she's at this well, I think it'd be too much for us, and we do what the Samaritan woman did, is change the subject. So go to verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, duh. Just called you out on that. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Oh, God, you're a smart man. Let's quit talking about me. Let's talk about you guys. You Jews say the real place to worship is in Jerusalem. While we, our fathers, gave us this place. Jesus wants to talk to her about her sin, and she avoids that by switching it to theology. She wants to start a debate about the right time and place to worship. So Jesus goes to her. Verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You're talking about a mountain? It doesn't matter, he says. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus informs her that worship is not about a place. It's not the location. It's about an attitude of the heart. Those who worship God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. This is God's will for her and for each one of us. Worship spiritually and honestly. Don't focus so much on the place and practice. Instead, focus on God, responding to Him truthfully from your heart. The problem when it comes to worship is we tend to look at these things. We try to focus on what this sounds like and the style and how it made me feel. I've been in worship services where my arms just lit up with goosebumps because of the presence of God and how it just flowed around the room. I've been in worship services where I was like, are you kidding? Both times, both times I lost focus. I looked at me. Because it doesn't matter if it's an old hymn or a brand new song. It doesn't matter if it's in a building that's kind of plain like this or one of those ornate ones that's got the figurines and the, the picture windows and all the stained glass. The true worshipers will worship where? In truth and spirit. The problem is worshipers tend on style and place, not God. John Ortberg, he's, he's got some great books. I just want to encourage any of you to read from John Ortberg. Well, him and, and a lady named Pam Howell describe the problem in terms of scarecrow worship and tin man worship. So in case you don't realize, we're going to talk a little bit about the Wizard of Oz here. This is what they write. Some churches specialize in generating emotion. The platform people are experts in moving worshipers to laughter and to tears. Attenders gradually learn to evaluate the service in terms of the emotion they feel. In time, however, the law of diminishing returns sets in. Prayers are offered in a highly emotive style and bathed in background music. Stories have to get more and more dramatic. Songs have to get more and more sentimental. Preaching has to get more histrionic and trying to reach them to keep people having an intense emotional Experience and such worship is often shallow, he says. Sometimes art artificial and rarely reflective. Little attention is given to worship with mind. It produces people who have little depth or rootedness. They develop a zeal for God, but not according to any knowledge. They become worship junkies searching for whichever church can supply the best rush, and that's scarecrow worship. It'd be better if they just used their brain. On the other hand, some churches focus keenly on cognitive correctness, they said. They recite great creeds, distribute reams of exegetical information, they craft careful prayers ahead of time, and yet the heart and spirit are not seized with wonder and passion that is characterized within the scriptures about people who must fall on their faces when they confront the living God 
No one is ever so moved in those places that they actually moved. It's tragic because as Dallas Willard writes, to handle the things of God without worship is always to falsify them. And Ortberg goes on to say, those who attend these services may be competent to spot theological error, but the unspoken truth is they are also bored. Their worship is dry. It does not connect with their deepest hurts and desires. Rarely does it generate awe or healing and never a, a raucous joy. This is ten-man worship. If only they had used their heart. Now, which one's better? Neither. We tend to try and side with one. I, I, I'll tell you right now. For me, I'm more of a tin man. I want the knowledge. I, I want the, the cognitive theological things. Then you go to Dustin. He's more of the scarecrow. He's going to be more of that emotive and that feeling. And which one's right? Only when we're together in balance. Because you get too much Dustin or too much Donnie, it's a bad day. Just ask our wives. Some people attempt to bring head and heart together, but have led not to the glimmering emerald eternal city, but to the wicked witch's forbidden dungeon divided, guarded by drones. We end up trying to facilitate and make it happen to combine them in a single service that tries to do it. But here's what happens in our minds, and this is not me writing it, it's again John Orberg. He says, at times we get it backwards, managing to combine in a single service the thoughtfulness usually associated with chandelier swinging Pentecostals or the emotional expression of Scottish Presbyterians. Those are bold words, some may even say offensive, but the true offense is worshiping God in only spirit or in only truth. We sit there and go, well, our, our worship may not be that bad. It's not as bad as that church. We're better than that church. And again, Jesus is saying it's not about a place. It's about God. To worship in spirit truth, the key is not to focus on style, but on Jesus. For worship is not about a time, a place, a style. It's an honest, heartfelt response of all that you are to all that God is, that He says, and that God does. It's not about the 10 o'clock hour on a Sunday morning in a beautiful sanctuary. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week lifestyle lived in gratitude and awe of a holy God who loves you with an everlasting love. Timothy Christensen put it this way, If worship is just one thing we do, everything becomes mundane. If worship is the one thing we do, everything can take on a significance or a eternal significance. The purpose of worship not to feel good or to learn. That can happen. And if it does, great. But the purpose of worship is to come to God in spirit and truth. Do you want to have your life, do you want your life to have meaning with eternal significance? Then make worship one of the key things you do. Let everything you do every day be an honest, heart 
heartfelt response to the holy God of love. You should be worshiping God even when that weirdo cuts you off in the, on the interstate. You should even be worshiping God when that kid who acts like your spouse does that. You should be worshiping God when you keep getting tempted to fall into sin. You should be worshiping God because then where is your focus on His holiness, on His greatness, on His power, on His mercy and grace? It's less on us, and then all of a sudden our focus starts changing. God's will for you is to first drink of His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, and then worship. Secondly, worship in spirit and truth. But that's not all. Let's go on. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. She knows about the coming Messiah. She's just this worthless Samaritan who knows where to worship, but it's not the place she can go. And now she knows about the coming Messiah. She points to the Savior. Right here, Jesus is pulling the strings of this conversation. She acknowledges and points to the Savior, and I see Jesus smile. There it is. He's got her. Through this conversation, she's finally gotten to why Jesus had to come to Samaria. She is proclaiming she is waiting for the Messiah, the Messiah who will tell her everything. And when he comes, she's anticipation. Then she'll learn, she'll grow, and she'll know what to do which means she will obey. She's waiting. Can't you see Jesus smiling like, you got it. You've got it. And verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, that sounds cool, but we need to understand that Jesus didn't speak in English. He was speaking in Aramaic, probably. And this, this statement is a little lost on us in English. Now, when you really wrap it up, this is literally what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, I am He. The one speaking to you is the I am. That's how this should be translated. The one who's speaking to you is God. The one who is speaking, the Christ. You're asking and waiting? Here I am. Do you see the boldness of this statement? At first, this Samaritan woman, just some weird Jewish guy asking for a drink. Oh, now he's a prophet. And now he's proclaiming he is God. What would, what would you do in that moment? Let's see what she does. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said... What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left with her water jar and went away into town and and said to the people, remember, she is there to avoid people. Now she's seeking people. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went up town and, and were coming to him. This despised woman, this scarlet-lettered woman, can't help but go and tell people the one that she's been ridiculed by, that she's been made fun of, that she's been ostracized by. I know the Messiah. Can this really be him? 
Her shame is gone in her public proclaim, and she publicly proclaims what Jesus has done for her. And guess what the people do? Do they mock her? Do they make fun of her? Do they ignore her? It, and no, it says, and they went out of town and were coming to see him. They respond. These people respond. They have to see this man who changed this woman. She went to go talk to the people that she was an outcast from so that she could bring them to Jesus. Once we learn to drink from his living water, once we learn to worship in spirit and truth, you can't help to tell people about Jesus. But who else is in this story right now? we got the disciples. They went looking for food. Now let's go to them. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We know you're tired. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Okay, you're on a trip somewhere, and, and they go, hey, you need to eat. Oh, I've got enough food. Where? Uh, share. You know, we've been on CIY trips when I was in youth ministry, and I hear a rapper, whoa, what is that? Been on vacation, and I hear some, um, give me some. Jesus says, I I've got all the food I need, okay? And uh, verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What are they thinking about? Food. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Jesus had to go through Samaria because God wanted him to minister to a despised Samaritan woman and open the eyes of those who are following him. He came to this woman's life to change her, to take away the shame, turn her into a bold witness, and to open up the eyes of the disciples of what it means to drink of the living water, and to worship in spirit and truth. And as he does so, Jesus gestures to the crowds. Look in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Okay. We're talking about water. We're talking about worship to a despised woman, and then Jesus goes on to farming. But here is a philosophical one, and it's hard to track with Jesus at times. What is he saying? First off, let's again, who are the disciples? They're the students. The ones that Jesus is teaching on how to reach people for the kingdom of God. And he says they have to go to Samaria. And when they get to this town, they think they go look for food. And Jesus is looking for real, eternal food. The thing that's going to sustain him, which is fulfilling the will of God. And then Jesus points to them, to this crowd. Right now as you drive around, you can see some of that corn is turning colors. Even some of the soybeans are turning. You know what that means? Tractors are going to be in the road soon. Be careful. Watch for them. Give them space. They're bigger. And they grow food. So be nice to them. We know harvest is coming. We can see those signs. But Jesus says, forget the food, disciples. 
look at the real thing, the real harvest. He says the harvest of people is right here. They are gathering. Here's this despised woman. She's bringing them in. She's harvesting them. And you didn't do a thing, disciples. And yet you're going to reap part of the benefits of being involved in this harvest. Jesus' disciples entered into this Samaritan woman's work. She sowed the seeds, creating interest in Jesus. And now the disciples are going to reap part of the harvest. I've heard people say, ah, man, I want to lead them to Christ. That's not always your job. Your job may be to introduce, to just share a little bit. Whether you get to be the one that fully speaks Jesus first, leads them into baptism, or into a greater, deeper faith, doesn't matter. You just need to do it, whatever you're called to do. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. She didn't go to school for it, did she? She had one encounter with Jesus started tasting living water, started learning about truth in spirit of real worship, and many people believed in Jesus because of her testimony. That she said, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, Jesus, they asked Him to stay with them, and, they, and He stayed there two days. You don't go stay in that part of town, of the country. You don't. And yet He did. Because he had to to fulfill God's word. And then verse 41, and many more believed because of whose word? His. Here's the key, verse 42 of this section. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans are getting this before the Jews do even before the disciples truly do it. She introduced them. They started believing her because something's totally different about this woman. And then they come in here, and now they say, hey, thanks for the introduction. I don't need you. I have him. Through Jesus' own words, through the woman's witness, and then the disciples' encouragement, they came to faith that day and experienced eternal transformation. That's what God wants you whether you're planting a seed or reaping a harvest of new believers, God wants us, and this is the third point. Uh, go ahead and jump down a little bit. The third part, tell others about Jesus. But I want you to look at this for a moment. If you're truly taking a drink of his living water, what's it going to do within you? Spring forth and continually refresh you. And as you're doing that, it's going to move you to worship God really worship. I'm not singing songs. I'm talking live a life of worship in spirit and in truth. And when you truly worship in spirit and truth, guess what happens? You tell people about Jesus. I just don't know how to tell people about Jesus. Drink of his water. Worship him. It just comes out. That, that's what it is. And when you do that, opportunities will open before you that you never realize because you'll finally start seeing them because you have living water, you're worshiping in spirit and truth, and you can't wait to tell others about Jesus. This is God's will for each one of us. It's God's will for each one of us. 
You cannot pick and choose which one you want, though. They all work together. God's will is for you every day to drink of His Spirit, worship in spirit and truth, and tell others about Jesus. If you pursue just these three desires in your life, in your everyday life, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to be living a life of busyness, but of productivity. Because you're going to see people behind you saying, man, come look at this guy. Come listen to this girl and how they teach me about Jesus. And then they're going to say, we don't, we thank you, but now I have him. And you're going to see this cascading line just keep crescendoing into a bigger group of people who know Jesus. If you pursue these three desires, you're not going to have to hassle and hurry. At the end of his life, Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished which means he was successful. And at that point in the history, in that point in the timeline, that didn't look like a success by human standards. But his ministry at that point would have been judged a failure in our minds, but yet he said it's a success. I have paid for the price. I've opened the door. Sometimes when we get worried about talking to people about Jesus, do you know what we worry about? What if I don't know what to say? What if I don't know how to answer their questions? What if it makes me look bad or makes the church look bad or if I say something wrong? First, let me just say something real quick. Anytime people came to Jesus, not all of them answered. Not all of them followed. Not Jesus didn't even have a 100% track record of bringing people to him. What makes you think you have to? So it's not about that. It's about being real. And secondly, if you don't know the answer, don't lie, don't fake. But what should you tell them? That's a great question. Can I come to you next week after I find an answer? And then call our elders and put them on the spot. And you can talk to Dustin and I too, but you know, call them. Ask us. We'll come together and we'll figure it out. And if we don't know, I know college professors. I'll call them. Because it's not about us. It's about him. The Apostle Paul put it at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. When it comes to your spiritual life, there's two questions. Is your life full of busyness? You just doing stuff? Or is it full of purpose? God doesn't want us busy. Because Jesus, what did he do? He went to the well and waited. He waited for the opportunity to do the will of God, not just to be busy. Why didn't he go out and try to talk to other people? Why didn't he try to do some stuff, heal some people and all that in that moment? Because it was God's will to wait for this woman, this person. And through this person, a cascading event of faith exploded in that town. And instead of trying to be busy, maybe we need to be on see what God is really calling for us to do. 
God's will is not to be busy, but to be faithfully fulfilling His will. Those three things are generic things of everybody's pers- of will, God's will for everybody here. We all have some personal things that God has will for. I personally called to preach. Some of you are personally called to go do things. I think Clayton was personally called to do that meditation. But in the midst of it, all of us need to still fulfill those general um, guidelines for God. To drink of His living water, to worship in spirit and truth, and to tell others about Jesus. I fail. I fail at it so many times. Thankfully, I can come back to that well and have it re-spring within me. Are you ready to do that? If you have never taken up that well, if you've never accepted Jesus, why, why wait? Why not choose today? Why not come to Him and let that life just build forth and spring out of you? Come and talk to us. Maybe you've already done it, but you keep messing up the next two pieces, the worshiping and the telling. We're going to have a time right now. We're going to go to God in prayer first, and then we're going to lift Him up in song. And we can start worshiping and telling. And it doesn't end here. This is just the beginning of it to go out there the rest of the week. So let's stand and let's go to God in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that you did come to us. That you waited specifically. That the will of God was that you would come and save us. Even sinners like me. Father, thank you for that. And Lord, as we need to repent of those failures, of those times that we just continually live, we forsake the water and we go back to the world. Remind us, God. Remind us of why we're here, that we can come and see you, and we can easily say that to so many other people, to come and see you, who knows everything about me, and yet still loves me and chooses me. God, help us in that. And let this song, let our voices, let our hearts and minds all join together as we lift up and worship you of who you truly are, the one and only Son who loved us, who died for us, and brings us to God the Father for eternity. And in that name we pray. Amen.